For those of you who haven't dialed in before, my name is Steve Flores. I'm a partner with Toga Siegel here in New York. Uh, we are a bankruptcy boutique, and my practice focuses on bankruptcy litigation. Um, these calls are done in conjunction with the ABI's uh, bankruptcy litigation quarterly newsletter. We've been doing them now for, I think, a couple of years. And the purpose of these quarterly calls is to allow uh, you folks, the readers, to ask questions of the authors and to allow the authors to expand a bit on the subject matter of their articles. Uh, the newsletter has been theme-based, and this past theme was uh, the mediation of disputes in bankruptcy. Um, so um, as we get going, uh, don't be shy about uh, asking questions. And um, before we get to the authors, I would just like to thank uh, Ferve uh, Otzerk uh, for putting together a great newsletter. She's the newsletter editor for the committee. And the co-chairs of the committee, uh, Luke Murley and Neil Steinkamp, for their efforts. And, of course, Martha Cannon for pulling all this together um, as well. Uh, but let's get to the authors. Uh, first, we have Thad Wilson, and Thad wrote, When Judges Mediate, Perspectives on Reaching a Successful Outcome. Uh, Thad is a senior associate at King & Spalding in Atlanta. Uh, Thad wrote the piece with Mark Maloney, who is a partner in the same office. And Thad and Mark also co-wrote the piece with uh, bankruptcy judge Bonifel, who is a bankruptcy court judge in Atlanta. Uh, unfortunately, Mark and Judge Bonifel can't be with us today, uh, but we do have Thad. And uh, next we have Sylvia Mayer. Sylvia wrote, Maximizing the Value of Bankruptcy Mediation. Sylvia is a partner with S. Mayer Law. Before that, she was a partner with Weil Gottschall. Sylvia has over 20 years of experience in litigation and bankruptcy work and she's a credentialed mediator, frequent lecturer, and writer on mediation and bankruptcy-related topics. Uh, next, we have Ed Schnitzer and Joe Orbach. Uh, they wrote Mediation Mother May I. Ed is a bankruptcy partner at Han Hessen here in New York City. Ed is also a court-approved mediator in Delaware and New York. Joe is an associate in the Bankruptcy Department at Han Hessen. Um, I do want to also note in the newsletter we have an article from Bankruptcy Judge Alan Trust. Judge Trust wrote, Max My Mediation. Uh, judge Trust is a bankruptcy judge in the Eastern District of New York. And for those of you who's, who've read his article in his own words, he was mediating when mediating wasn't cool. Uh, but unfortunately, Judge Trust uh, can't be with us today. Um, so, uh, if we could, uh, let's dive in and get to the articles, and again, I encourage uh, all of you to ask questions. Uh, just remember, you have to hit star six to unmute your line. Um, but let me start, if I could, with Ed and Joe. Uh, your article focuses on um, an opinion from a judge that had very particular views on I'll say how mediation should be handled. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the decision and whether uh, you view the, the perspective of uh, the judge to be a little unique? 
Hi, Steve. It's Ed. Thank you for the question. Um, yeah, Bojo and I found the case to be very, very unusual. Um, we wouldn't expect a decision like it to come out again. I, we, you know, our take was, you know, from reading it as our, your only real source of knowledge is that the judge was upset that the parties didn't alert him as to the mediation until it was already set up. So rather than the judge, you know, rather than in some situations where you have a judge suggesting mediation in open court or where parties actually in open court ask the judge, you know, Your Honor, may we go to mediation? This was one where the parties did it on their own and almost told the judge after the fact. And so I think because of that, uh, it, it, it appeared to be from the decision the judge was, you know, was irritated, you know, because of that, and also took it as an occasion to express some, I think, strong views as to retention of mediators. And then also he spent a good amount of time talking about using former bankruptcy judges as as mediators as well. Yeah, you raised a couple of uh really good points that I, I wanted to follow up on. Um, you, you mentioned that the judge was not keen on having retired judges from the same district as mediators. Um, I think uh, I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn here if I say um, many folks would think that a retired judge would have the, the sway to bring the, the parties together. What was uh, the judge's issue? And this is Joe Orbach. Uh, the judge seemed to be concerned about the appearance of, of, of impropriety that perhaps as a former colleague of the court, he would have particular insight into the judge that might not be appropriate. It's not exactly clear. You know, our thoughts, Ed and I, was the same as yours. A, a retired judge from the same district often is the best kind of judge because he could be frank with the parties and tell them, look, if I was on the bench, this is how I would rule. And in fact, Ed and I recently mediated matters in DOTS. And in that case, it was a district in New Jersey case. The uh, Judge Lyons retired, was the mediator for all the preferences in DOTS. So in, in that case, they actually preferred to have a retired bankruptcy judge. And then you also mentioned uh, the retention. Um, and I, I recall that um, the judge required the mediator to be retained under 327. Um, guys, uh, yeah, maybe you could give an overview of, of how mediators and retentions are, are typically handled, in your view. Sure. I mean, in our view, this was also very, very strange because, you know, that section's for typically retention of professionals you know, by the estate, and it's a professional who's working for the estate, most people consider a mediator as someone who's not working for the estate or for, you know, whoever the counterparty is, whether it be a defendant or, you know, some type of, you know, a claimant situation. So the 327 issue is definitely um, an anomaly. In most cases that we see, um, there is no retention application. There's usually a stipulation and a court order if there's not a general court or court order already authorizing the mediator and authorizing the parties to pay the mediator and sometimes you do a you know a, a one off so to speak stipulation and order if you're having a a different kind of payment process in place 
but uh, we've never seen a mediator, at least not in New York or Delaware, having to actually be retained um, under under 327. Let me uh, shift gears for a minute. And um, uh, Sylvia, your article gave some what I thought were really practical tips on how to get the most out of mediation. And what I thought was interesting and was hoping maybe you could expand on was um, you make the point that deciding to mediate um, too early may not be, uh, well, too early is not good, too late is not good. Let me ask you, um, how do you assess uh, when the time is right? Uh, just remember to hit uh, star six to unmute your line. Thank you for the reminder. Uh, th that is a great question. It's really something that the parties and their attorneys have to assess because the mediator comes to it cold. Uh, a lot of times we may not realize the case isn't right for mediation until we're a couple of hours into the process. But from the party's perspective, the things you need to be thinking about are do you have the information necessary to make an informed decision so that you're not going too early? And did you wait too late so that somebody has already bought into their own advocacy? There's a lot of psychological issues that come up in mediation that sometimes people don't appreciate, which, you know, for example, we have a, a psychological bias towards our own advocacy. So oftentimes early on in the process when we're developing our theories, uh, either whether we're the party asking for something or the party defending against it, we're coming up with our theories and we might be cognizant of some of the weaknesses. But as we continue to prepare to advocate those positions, we become less and less aware of our weaknesses. And sometimes we get too wedded to it. And that's when mediation comes too late, when people are so embedded in their advocacy bias that there's no way for them to appreciate their vulnerabilities. So it changes. Every case is unique um, in terms of what the right timing is. I, it's, I have had cases where I've mediated. I had a case recently where the parties never actually exchanged pieces of paper. So I actually ended up playing more of an administrative role, and I told everybody to bring with them to the mediation all of the invoices all of the evidence of payment. And we spent three or four hours going through all those pieces of paper. And at the end, they actually just had an agreement. It wasn't a settlement. It was just, oh, yeah, this is actually what the documents say. So you have to find the right time in every case. Uh, and I know you have um, experience Inside and outside of bankruptcy, uh, from your perspective, how does bankruptcy mediation differ from um, out-of-bankruptcy uh, civil mediation? There are a lot of differences, but there are probably, I'd say, three primary differences. One has already been addressed, which is sort of the process that you have to go through in bankruptcy talking to the judge, does the debtor need approval, what do you do about paying the fees, those kinds of things. Um, another is uh, we think outside of bankruptcy, we think of what happens in, in a mediation as being sort of inviolate, it's totally confidential, and at the end there's a settlement and it's signed and that's a binding agreement. But in bankruptcy, 
neither of those things may ultimately be true. Sometimes uh, the debtor has to disclose information, perhaps in a disclosure statement or a 9019 motion, and sometimes there are other issues that cause the court to look into what occurred during the mediation. And similarly, the debtor never has, or I shouldn't say never, the debtor rarely has the authority to sign a binding settlement agreement in mediation. Oftentimes that settlement has to go back to the court to be blessed, whether it's being baked into a Chapter 11 plan that's subject to confirmation or whether it's going to go back to court to be blessed through a 9019. And then uh, the, the other really big difference between civil litigation and, and other non-bankruptcy mediation uh, and a bankruptcy mediation is who's sitting at the table. Um, you don't usually, uh, in other cases, have a whole bunch of other parties with a vested interest in the outcome. In a bankruptcy mediation, the outcome of a dispute, even if it's a two-party dispute, may affect others. So you might have a creditor's committee who is there or a creditor's committee who's going to question the results or a U.S. trustee or some other party that's going to question the results after the fact or participate in the mediation. And you may have a multifaceted, multi-party mediation where you're not dealing with just one issue but a variety of issues and people's alignments as, as all of us know who are on the phone who've, who've practiced bankruptcy, we all know that there's always shifting allegiances. And, and the same thing is true in a mediation. Uh, and you don't see that in non-bankruptcy mediation. Interesting points. Um, let me get Thad involved. Uh, Thad, in your article, you, you talk a little bit about um, the different approaches of mediators. And um, can you tell us a little bit about the approaches and what – uh, you and Mark look for when selecting uh, mediators? Sure, absolutely. You know, our view is that there's two types of mediators. One is an evaluative type of mediator. The other type is a facilitating mediator. Uh, on the former, you basically have somebody who's going to come in, evaluate the merits of your case, um, and somewhat uh, be extremely blunt with the parties in terms of how that particular mediator thinks this case is going to be uh, ultimately decided by the presiding judge. On the other hand, you have facilitating mediators who are focused on looking at the uh, economics and underlying risk allocation associated with the, the claims and issues in the case, uh, not necessarily doing a deep dive as it relates to the merits of the case. In our experience, you know, both types of mediators can be effective, and it just depends on the circumstances. But in general, our view is that uh, facilitating mediators tend to get uh, parties to focus on what is appropriate uh, or an appropriate result in a bankruptcy case, um, mainly because at the end of the day in a bankruptcy case versus traditional litigation, you're looking more or less at, at the underlying risk allocation and economics um, in terms of settling claims, um, you know, a proof of claim versus, versus a complaint against a, a defendant. A, pr a classic example, preference case, you know, an individual defendant um, has a substantial claim against the estate. You know, how does that ultimately wash out uh, when you look at the, at the preference case? Uh, analysis uh, w when it relates to set-off, recoupment, et cetera, 
and a facilitating mediator is likely to get the parties focused on the underlying uh, economics of the situation, how much is it going to cost to, to uh, litigate the case, how much uh, are you actually going to collect, what, what are your uh, potential appellate issues. So, so that's really the focus of a facilitating mediator versus, you know, in other circumstances, more hotly contested litigation. Sometimes the matter requires uh, an evaluative mediator who's, who's willing to drill down on the merits and, and really tell the parties what he or she thinks, notwithstanding that the presiding judge might ultimately have a very different perspective. And you and Mark really had a unique resource uh, with your piece in Judge uh, Bonapel. Um, based on your dis discussions uh, and your, your working through this, this piece, can you, can you give the practitioners uh, on the line some uh, takeaways uh, that, or do's and don'ts that you uh, gleaned from the judge? Yeah, so from our perspective, we were talking with Judge Bonifel about, okay, what really makes a mediation successful? And for practitioners going into a mediation, the, the biggest issue that, that I think Judge Bonifel sees when he's mediating cases, and it's been marked in my experiences, is that there are often times where one party uh, or counsel on one side hasn't really evaluated his case appropriately or hasn't shared that evaluation with his client such that the client has completely unreasonable expectations. And under those circumstances, uh, a mediation is very unlikely to succeed because at the end of the day, everybody has to uh, come to some sort of consensus as it relates to what are the relative risks associated with, with my underlying either defenses or claims and when, when practitioners don't do their job, uh, that makes it very difficult um, for the mediator to ultimately get the parties to a settlement. You know, and, and I mentioned a couple of these things. Really, it's, you know, what, are, what steps are remaining to get to trial? You know, what's the best alternative to a negotiated agreement? In other words, you know, is, are we going to trial? Are we, you know, are we going to have to fight this all the way up on appeal? Um, is the judge's decision in the underlying matter a matter of discretion or is it compelled? So in other words, is it a straight up legal question? Is it a question of law and fact? Or is it merely a, a factual issue? Because that can have a significant impact on the risk uh, assessment. And then finally, like I mentioned before, you know, what is going to be the standard of review on appeal? So if it's if it's clearly a fact issue, uh, you know, those issues are are given, you know, significant discretion on uh, uh, and uh, on appeal. And so at the end of the day, if it's a if it's a law a question of law, you're going to get a de novo review. Um, and if you, it's a question of fact, the, the issue is whether or not the bankruptcy court uh, committed clear error uh, in, in the finding of fact, uh, and that is a very unusual uh, hurdle to overcome. So, you know, the biggest takeaway in talking with Judge Bonifel was really, you know, judges oftentimes send signals to the parties. Um, and by sending or, or ordering parties to mediation, oftentimes it's the judge, uh, whether 
you know, implicitly or explicitly telling the lawyers that they need to uh, do a better job of apprising their clients of the risks associated uh, and the economics associated with, with the underlying case. And we've all had very difficult clients before who, who don't want to settle, um, and, and we, we understand those circumstances. And, and sometimes mediation just doesn't make sense under those circumstances. But if you are going to have a successful mediation, it ultimately comes back to, you know, are the lawyers effectively communicating the, the risks associated and the economics uh, or likely economic outcomes of the, of the underlying litigation? Um, now I have a question really is a jump ball for the authors. Um, and we don't have Judge Trust here, but um, – he he made a what I thought was a very interesting point in his article, and he suggested that in pre-mediation statements, um, while of course you should spend time on uh, the merits of your case and why 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 your case is a strong one, he also said spend some time focusing on possible resolutions. So focus more on what you need to get. Um, to reach a resolution. And I'm wondering uh, what views the panel has on how a mediation statement should be different than a run-of-the-mill litigation filing like a brief. Steve, I think it depends in part on what type of mediator uh, you're going in front of and the, and the type of mediation you're hoping to have. If you've got a circumstance where you have clients who are, who are at complete odds with one another that really what you need is somebody to go in and an evaluative mediator to go in and really beat up on one or even both of the parties, you know, maybe your mediation statement reads more like a, like a trial brief. Uh, but if... Um, you know, you are inclined and your client is inclined to try to drive a settlement. I, my personal view is that it helps to give the mediator uh, advance um, indications of, of kind of where your thresholds are uh, to, to start the settlement negotiations. Um, you know, also playing into that decision-making process is whether or not the mediation statements are going to be confidential. I've been in mediations where the parties have exchanged mediation statements. I've been in mediations where, where they haven't. And so obviously that, um, that uh, plays a, a role as well. Sure, sure. Um, we, uh, our firm did, I think, about a thousand mediations in Collins and Aikman, where, and I think most of those mediation statements were swapped, which of course would impact what you're putting in it versus uh, a statement that's just going to the uh, mediator. Any anyone else uh, want to comment on uh, on that? Yeah, this is this is Sylvia Mayer. I I'd like to share. I will tell you that as a mediator, I spend a lot of time in mediation trying to sift through not just what people have written, but also what they have what they are saying to ascertain what their real underlying interest is, what their need is. And so to the extent that someone can actually tell me that up front, 
it can expedite the process of trying to find a resolution. I will say, however, that what I find is oftentimes people aren't aware. And it's really through talking through the issues with them and their concerns that we can figure out together what their real underlying driver is. But if someone can tell me that in their mediation statement, that just speeds up the process and helps us get there faster. Does uh, anyone else on the line have uh, any questions for the authors? Uh, please remember to press star six to unmute yourself if you have questions. Uh, hello, uh, this is Ferve. Um, uh, thank you all for for coming today. I uh, I had a quick question about something that um, Judge Trust had said in his article. I think he had pointed out the importance of building confidence um, in the process early on, and I'm wondering what um, what folks would what are folks' thoughts on uh, on that element of it? You know, kind of. You know, say you say it's not you know say you're not working with uh, you know a, a, maybe a, a judge or a former judge uh, who you know may have some built-in credibility but uh, um, you know otherwise how, how would you uh, you know what are your thoughts on uh, building confidence? Hi, this is Ed Schnitzer. Um, I, I, I think the building confidence is, is very important. I think mediations can definitely fail and fail quickly if one side or the other believes the mediator is not, um, basically is not impartial or not neutral. If one side feels like the mediator is, and it, it goes both ways, if you feel like the mediator is on the other party's side, you, the lawyer and the client both, it affects how you evaluate what the mediator is is saying or not saying, and I think vice versa. If you have a mediator um, who's on your side and perhaps too much, it might create you know have a situation where you or your client get too get overconfident in terms of your case, and then rather than going or having the intent to settle, you start kind of reversing yourself and 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 thinking you know thinking even stronger of your case than you were before and being like, well, we're not going to settle at all. You know, we're going to win here. You know, the mediator agrees with us. So I think on either side of it, if that confidence isn't built from the beginning of a, of a fair process and the mediator is not on anybody's side, only on the side of helping parties, you know, perhaps reach an agreement, if that doesn't happen early on and continue, um, it can definitely create a problem. And this is Thad. I, I agree with Ed. And, and one of the things that I think that mediators can do to build that credibility, credibility early is to otherwise have a good grasp on the underlying facts and claims in the case. Uh, because I've been in mediations before where, you know, mediators are, are, are literally mediating, you know, 500 cases uh, out of a bankruptcy case, and they don't know yours from a different uh, case that they're mediating. They just haven't spent very much time on, on the mediation statements uh, and are just kind of going in trying to wing it. Um, and that becomes very apparent quickly. 
Uh, and so I, I, I completely agree with Ed that you've got to build that credibility early. And I think the way to do that is through demonstrating an understanding of, of the issues that the parties really care about. Anyone else have any uh, questions for the authors? I think uh, you're getting off easy today. Um, but um, I think uh, if no one else has any other questions, I, I just have one other one. So I know that, you know, the, uh, at least some of the authors are credentialed um, mediators um, and also engage in mediation on behalf of clients. Um, are there any thoughts on sort of what uh, can or should be done um, so that you don't run into a situation where um, you're upsetting the court, as was the case in uh, in the uh, uh, opinion that uh, Ed and and Joe talked about. Is it as simple as just keeping the court in the loop, letting the court know, hey, we'd like to mediate, and getting getting the court's blessing, or is there is there more to it? This is this, this Joe. Is, you know, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the, the court doesn't want to be surprised that the mediation is about to occur or mediation has occurred. And there's never really an emergency where you're having an emergency mediation. There's always time when you're doing mediation to let the court know. Uh, I'm in a case right now where the judge in Delaware, sua sponte, directed the parties to mediation. And debtor's counsel in that case has gone out of its way the judge ordered it. You know, we have one order saying that the uh, debtors can pay 50% of the mediator's fee, but that wasn't enough for the, the debtors in that case. They now actually just this morning submitted uh, under certification of counsel an order, you know, blessing the mediator's fee, telling the court this is who the parties picked, this is his hourly rate. We're going to pay it pursuant to your other order, but just wanted to let you know. So I, I think that's that sort of thing will always, you know, give you cover, and there's sort of no reason not to. The cost is so minimal to keep the court informed. Yeah, this is Sylvia Mayer. I, I think that that's exactly right. The most important thing is for the court to be informed from both public discussions with judges or in various panels about bankruptcy mediation and private discussions with them. That is the thing I hear from them all the time. I want to know. So I think it's incumbent on debtors' counsel to make sure the court is advised that there is an intent to use mediation, and then you have to know your judge because you have to know whether that judge is going to want you to get an order authorizing the mediation, uh, and you have to figure out how you're going to pay the mediation fee uh, and whether attorney's fees for the debtors' counsel can be paid with respect to the mediation if you don't get that blessed in advance. So debtors' counsel really needs to think through going to mediation and communicating with the court. And one, one other observation is, you know, in our discussion with Judge Bonifel, one of the things that we, we talked about was the fact that oftentimes when you go to the court, 
the judge, your presiding judge, is likely going to have views on whether or not one of his or her colleagues should be the actual mediator, thus saving the parties money. Um, and and that can be, you know, obviously the communication is important, uh, and and that's one of the reasons why. That's a great point. Um, if uh, if no one else has any questions, um, I'd like to thank our authors and everyone for um, dialing in. Any other questions out there? I'd just say thanks for your efforts here. Appreciate it. This is Lou Kornreich. Uh, as, a, as a former bankruptcy judge, there's one other point I'd like to make about keeping judges informed. Um, cases have pretrial orders, and uh, there, there, there may be some dating that becomes an issue. And if the dating becomes an issue, such as a discovery date or a trial date, uh, the, the party should uh, make the effort to request an amendment of the, of the schedule uh, otherwise, the court will presume uh, that things are on track. Thank That's you. That's a great, great point, Judge. Um, anyone else out there care to comment? Well, thank you for joining the call today, authors. Thanks again, both for the articles and participating in this. Um, and uh, we encourage you to keep participating in writing for the ABI. Uh, and we will uh, have our next call um, in about three months. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.